Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Phil Craft Survival Podcast. I'm your host, Mike. And if you're listening to this, more than likely it's the 4th of July or just right after the 4th of July. So happy Independence Day. If you guys don't know what Independence Day is, it's uh, July 4, 1776 is a day that represents the Declaration of Independence and really the birth of the United States of America as an independent nation. And when I think about the 4th of July, I think about all the freedoms that were afforded and and the great country that we live in. You know, I, I see uh, every morning when I wake up, the news, the media, and everything twisted and turned out inside out sometimes. But it, it reminds me of how free we are and how, based on the amendments, based on the constitutional rights of this country, for every citizen that we're able to express ourselves the way we are and do the things that we do on a, on a daily basis without the threat of tyranny or the threat of, of violence in most cases. And so when people go out and they celebrate Independence Day with fireworks, with barbecuing and celebrating freedom, I just want them to always think about the sacrifice of the men and women who serve in our military and our government contracting uh, that make those sacrifices every single day. You know, the past and the present need to be acknowledged. World War II, Korea, Vietnam, even even the the small conflicts in between. Uh, I want to say personally thank you to all the men and women who have served this country and who continue to serve this country overseas. I know just recently we lost a few guys in 10th Special Forces Group, uh, including an EOD tech. And I, I say we because I served in 10th Special Forces Group as a team sergeant, as an operations sergeant of a sniper halo detachment. And uh, part of my heart in special operations lies there with those men and those women who serve our country overseas. So thank you. Thank you so much for uh, giving us that opportunity to have the freedom that we have today because of you. So this podcast is sponsored by killcliff.com. Not sure if you've been seeing us on at Philcraft on Instagram, but we're on this Killcliff kick. One of the reasons why is because they're big advocates for Navy SEAL Foundation, and they support uh, uh, veteran uh, advocacy programs, and that's a big deal for us. Any business that takes a part part or portion of their proceeds of profit and push it towards um, any kind of uh, nonprofit organization that helps other people, I think that's a, a company to stand behind. And not only that, but Killcliff obviously has good energy drinks. I stopped drinking all the crap that I was drinking before, realizing that it was killing people. Some of these energy drinks are killing people, especially kids who don't know any better. But uh, making better choices in energy, energy drinks, pre, during, and post-workout, Killcliff has it all covered. Um, in addition to that, they're not loaded down with caffeine like the other ones are. And you can get the vitamins and minerals that's needed, especially post-workout. And uh, I, I like the Recover. I'm a big fan of the Recover energy drink. Uh, I drink a couple a day. And uh, yeah, check them out, killcliff.com. Make sure you use Survival 1-5, Survival 1-5 to save 15% on checkout. Hey guys, uh, this podcast is on overlanding and off-roading. You know, we have at Philcraft Mobility, we get asked a lot of questions when it comes to what mobility platform do I need to choose? You know, what kind of setup is the best setup? And what direction do I need to move when talking about overlanding and off-roading? Because more people are getting interested in it. I think one of the reasons that is, is this exercising of freedom. You know, more people that want to get outside, get away from the cell phone, get away from the office, um, get away from their daily routine, head out into nature. And so by default, which we like as a company because we specialize in preparedness, you are setting yourself up 
for preparedness by having an off-road or overland-capable rig that's capable of getting you off the beaten path, off the grid, and also by default uh, allowing you to adventure. So we'll cover some of those things today in detail. First, I want to talk about some of the things that are going on in the news. Uh, If you didn't hear it uh, already, uh, Master Chief uh, Eddie Gallagher, Eddie Gallagher, a Navy SEAL, 20-year Navy SEAL veteran, was just um, tried, and uh, he was proven to be uh, not guilty of killing an ISIS fighter. He was found not guilty of of, uh, killing an ISIS fighter. What's interesting about this whole case is, one, it's been a media shitstorm. I mean, ever since uh, Special Operator, I'm sorry, uh, 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 Special Operations Chief Ed Gallagher uh, was brought into the spotlight, which in some ways might have benefited him, but in a lot of ways uh, made it so he potentially couldn't have got, or couldn't have got, you you like that? Um, He might not have received a fair trial based on everything that was going on. And there's all kinds of issues that were going on from the prosecution side. And, you know, I don't know all the specific details, but the bottom line is yesterday uh, there was a special operator first class, a Navy medic that testified that uh, he saw Gallagher stab the ISIS prisoner but that it was Scott who, or I'm sorry, but it was a uh, uh, special operator first class um, who suffocated the prisoner to death as an act of mercy. And so he said and admitted, I think he was on the prosecution side, right? He was part of the prosecution team that was given immunity if they testified, and he admitted that he killed him, uh, not Eddie Gallagher. And, you know, despite everything that was going on, everything that happened, uh, the reality is it's a it's a uh, bad situation, one, for the Navy SEAL and special operations community, two, that we don't give the benefit of the doubt uh, to the special operations members who are serving our country overseas in austere environments and, you know, very high-stressed uh, situations. You know, I'm not an advocate at all for um, murdering, the, uh, murdering people overseas th- that we're combating. There is a right way to obviously be in, engaged in combat, and and I, I believe that when it comes to taking special operations members and putting them in these situations, we shouldn't second-guess their decisions, especially guys who are senior as uh, Ed Gallagher. I'm not saying that they should have a, um, you know, a, a get-out-of-jail-free card where they go and do whatever they want. What I'm saying is, when we start to micromanage their individual decisions on the battlefield, uh, I think it sets a bad precedence, especially when we spin it in the media. You know, it's it's bad for special operations, bad for um, the Navy SEAL community when we do things like this, and it becomes a media debacle. And at the end of the day, he was found not guilty for you know for obvious reasons. And now look at the situation. It, it just it's insane that um, you know we we don't have a better way of managing things like this. Um, but I'm glad that uh, Ed Gallagher's family, it, this is behind them moving forward. And he was found guilty of taking pictures with a, uh, a person, a human casualty. I think it, it's the unofficial picture with a human casualty, uh, which was he was wrongfully posing with, which is a lesser charge, and I believe has a max penalty of four months in jail, which he already served. And so moving on and moving forward, I hope we can put this behind us. And uh, I just want to say, uh, you know, thank you to Ed Gallagher, the Navy SEAL platoon that served in combat and they continue to serve all across 
the globe, you know, the global war on terror is not just a isolated country. It's all over the place. So thank you guys for your service. And I'm glad that Ed can put this behind him. And, uh, you know, recently I posted up on my personal page uh, at mike.a.glover asking for people's opinion on the Afghan uh, war. And, you know, obviously, you know, hell, right next door, George Bell, Master Sergeant retired George Bell, who's a PSYOPs guy, was attached to 3rd Ranger Battalion when they jumped into Rhino DZ October 19th of 2001, you know, a month after 9-11. And we've been fighting that war since. I mean, guys were on the ground, you know, right after 9-11, and we've been there ever since. Um, You're talking about 18-plus years later, we're still in a war uh, in Afghanistan. You know, we lost a Green Beret and an EOD tech uh, last week, and then uh, due to a combat operation, and then a non-combat related death of a Green Beret in Afghanistan from 10th Special Forces Group as well. You know, when I when I think about um, our position and our place, I reflect back back on our on my deployments to Afghanistan. Now, I don't have a lot of deployments to Afghanistan. I have two deployments to Afghanistan. Both of them was with special operations, and I have five. Uh, to Iraq, all with special operations. And I will say that, you know, one of my nine-month trips in Afghanistan, I was shocked to see the cultural divide and differences um, between us and the Afghan people, but also between the different tribes and regions of Afghanistan. If you don't know a lot of history about Afghanistan, any anybody... Um, Coming into that country, whether it's occupation or war, has failed to combat uh, the Afghans because of the terrain. I mean, I was in a remote fire base north of Asadabad with with, with uh, just some perspective. They launched for uh, Neptune Spear out of Jalalabad. So there's a base above that in Asadabad, another town. And I was the furthest northern base near a place called Barakout in Afghanistan at the time. And we landed in a place called Kamdesh in helicopters once for a, uh, a reconnaissance operation. And people thought we were Russians. I mean, the people, this is early on in the war, but they thought we were Russians. And so this place is completely displaced from the centralized government. And really what they want to accomplish in their objectives and their goals in this war. What that means is, you know, in Kandahar and Bagram, you have a centralized government that's trying to affect the country where they don't even have access to those places in, rem- in the remote p- portions of the country near the Hindu Kush. So it's hard for them to affect these regions and even harder for them to kill or capture bad guys that are doing bad things. And so the way I think about it is, you know, the second we potentially pull out of there is the second that Taliban and uh, foreign fighters and terrorists completely will come in there and take things back over. It won't be that difficult to do. So when I think about our strategic objectives, it's no wonder that 73% of the people I polled in the thousands said that they wouldn't want to be involved in the Afghan war. It's been too long. And I agree with that sentiment to an extent. I mean, when you see these operations or you know, Green Berets or special operations or soldiers uh, getting killed overseas, it makes you wonder, like, what are we doing there? What's the end goal and the objective? And I think it, it, goes, it goes back 
um, to the basics, which is you need to define the mission and create a a timeline based on an expectation that you're going to accomplish those goals leading up to that end state. And you know, I get that Afghanistan is a complex a complex environment, but the contrast to that that solution is this: we just continue to fight forever. Now, maybe special operations and foreign internal defense, whether that's providing um, you know the advising, uh, the assistance, financial assistance, supply assistance, um, or direct combat assistance with special operations teams operating with Afghan partnered forces, that's one thing. That's one element. But to have this larger signature of soldiers, uh, sailors, Marines, and airmen operating overseas um, seems to not have a good in-state or strategic objective. Now, that's that's maybe probably perception, right? The generals, the Joint Chiefs, um, the Secretary of Defense, they probably have a strategic uh, objective, but maybe not. Maybe not. I mean, I, I've I've sat in on meets in Iraq, where by all perception, um, based on the media perception of what was going on in Iraq, we thought we were we were doing something that was going to lead to an end state or a goal. But I've sat in, in meets where they, you know, policymakers were literally saying, I, "I don't know if this is something that we can win. I don't even know if winning is." strategically in our best interest and and what that means when you win. Like, what does it mean when you win in Afghanistan? Is it a, you know, defined bullet points of uh, when culminated means winning? So I don't know what that means. And one of the, one of the problems and beefs that I have with strategic policy uh, in the military is this expectation that these countries, these third world countries are going to somehow be um, modeled after America's democratic policy. Um, and even in the military, I don't think that's possible. I re- even at the tactical level, I remember um, being told from higher echelons above me, even generals and colonels coming down on us and saying, hey, we need to get these guys to in better physical condition. We need to train these guys up. I even had an 06, uh, a full bird colonel tell me, that we needed to start implementing CrossFit. And I, I perplexed, I said, you know, respectfully, sir, do you understand, uh, you know, anatomically, genetically? One, a lot of these guys don't have the aptitude, right? So when it comes to complex operations, like Haas's rescues and special reconnaissance, they don't even have the aptitude, right? They could follow um, battle drill orders, like, hey, get down in the prone, shoot back but they don't have the aptitude to process a lot of information the way that we do. And they sure as hell don't have the physical capabilities that we do. Hell, they don't even have the access to protein like we do. I mean, literally eating mutton stew or uh, food with meat in it was a privilege, right? And that, that didn't happen so often. And so it was a lot of carbohydrates and bread and, you know, and fruit and, and maybe vegetables, and a lot of their protein was sourced from almonds or nuts. And so if you don't have the, the availability to even recover from your workout, do we need to be doing powerlifting with these guys who can barely carry their own weight? Um, you know, some of these guys are gazelles, and they can climb mountains like mountain goats, like billy goats. 
but a lot of them um, aren't built like that. You put kit and body armor and everything else down on them. I've seen a lot of Afghan guys um, not make the cut because of that. And so we have to manage our expectations when we look at uh, what we think is success versus their success. I remember operating in Libya and literally telling people, like, look, I don't care if these, this counterterrorism unit looks like CrossFit, CrossFit uh, athletes. Um, I, don't, I don't want them to be special operations operators. I want them to be able to go in a building and accomplish the objective like infantry soldiers and do it well. And so we had to lower the expectation of the output. Look, you're talking about a third world country. I mean, I've been in villages where there's no electricity, um, uh, there's no generators, there's no running water, there's nothing. And we expect to go in these uh, areas and convince them that our strategy, they don't even know what strategy means, our strategy is the one to follow when you know they have their local hometown uh, boys coming in there saying, hey, you know, we're part of the Taliban. And so there's a big cultural gap there as well. You know, look, it's complex, right? One, we can't reset the clock based on a strategy that we've leaned forward in necessarily. And so if we have an objective and that end objective is 10 years from now and we're in the middle of that, it's hard to criticize people and say, hey, we need a, we need a new strategy because maybe we're halfway through a working strategy. But I think having not having a, a uh, end state, not having a definitive timeline, uh, you know, that sets a precedence uh, for us that just doesn't work for me. I mean, I don't think it works for the majority of the American people. Nobody see, likes to see Americans dying overseas for somebody else's war. And, you know, having perspective, spending a lot of my life in special operations at war, uh, that's my perspective. I don't want these guys, I don't, even though I know they want to be at war, my, my peers want to be fighting wars because that's what they joined to do. Um, but I don't like seeing it sitting here at home, especially when we don't have what seems to be a clear end goal or objective. Um, so also uh, some other things going on in the news. There was a 73-year-old who was rescued after spending seven days right outside of L.A. in a national forest where he got lost and detached from his group. I find some of the, the things about this story pretty odd. Um, I posted a picture on at Philcraft Survival's Instagram page talking about the situation and uh, showing a picture of uh, search and rescue, picking him up in a helicopter. His shoes were completely destroyed. But he got lost. He got separated from his group. He survived off of creek water he was drinking. Um, he went five days, I believe, without food, they said. And he was picked up and he survived. Lucky for him. I mean, if the temperature in California wasn't optimal, there wasn't warm nights, obviously exposure is one of those elements that will kill you the quickest. And so um, I'm glad they found him, but it, it, it bewilders me, even at 73, right? 73 is young to me. I mean, I know guys who are in their 70s who are super squared away and, and uh, understand and are cognitive and everything else. So when I see somebody like that get lost, it, it disappoints me because I want people to pay attention to what is happening with these men and women who are getting separated from their groups. And they're getting lost. Now, Maybe there's dementia. Maybe there's things that I don't understand about the entire story. But the bottom line is compass, map, um, mylar space space blanket, fire starter, basics of survival in a minimalist survival kit that we sell online. 
should be a staple of your everyday carry, especially when you're going hiking. If you're going hiking in Tiva, Tiva's board shorts and a t-shirt, there's something missing. Minimalist survival kit, minimalist med kit. It won't impede your ability to hike. Carry it with you 100% because this guy got lucky. A lot of people do get lucky, um, but a lot of people don't. Um, yeah, make sure you pay attention to things like that. I, what I've been trying to do is on the on the social media stuff, yeah, I could talk about bushcraft all day long. I could talk about everyday carrying guns, et cetera. But I kind of want to educate people on best practices, uh, whether it's mindset, equipment, training, et cetera. I want to make sure that I diversify because modern survival is a broad genre. We're not just talking about one specific thing. If you want to survive today, um, in today's age of technology, when you go off the grid, when you are living your everyday life, then it requires a lot of information. And I hope you guys are getting some benefit out of that. Um, so let's talk about some overlanding, guys. Look, overlanding, I, I remember the first time that we said we were doing Fieldcraft Mobility and we got a whole bunch of guys and gals that were attacking us on social media. And it reminds me of uh, Mike Pfeiffer, a good buddy of ours from Last Line of Defense. He did a recent post where he was posting videos on YouTube and three quarters of the things, of the comments that were being made were negative. And one, I, I just don't see the purpose in that, but I get it. There's people out there that are, are negative. They don't have constructive criticism, even when they're trying, trying to be uh, constructive. Um, and basically, they're just being buttholes. And they're out there just with one in-state or objective, and that's just to be rude, obnoxious. And I don't pay any of those people any attention. In fact, when I identify them, I, I love it because I love to see the crap come to the surface so I could block, delete, and just move on with my life. I won't even entertain them with uh, the conversation because I don't think it's worth the conversation. Now, constructive criticism is different. Having a, a opinion um, and with uh, inquisition and, and understanding and trying to get uh, become better or understand things broader, that's different because you can have that. And I love to see that worked out. I love to see people um, who come in with a preconceived notion and then they state something that might not be true and then somebody addresses it and they don't do it rudely and then there's good engagement. That's the engagement that I like. When we didn't, went into mobility, it was all these guys from all these forums started coming out of the woodwork. And what they were doing was they were going back to their tribe to their form, telling their buddies. And then we'd get like 50 people attacking us on YouTube or attacking us. In fact, I think the original attack was on a video that we did in Moab that was part of a trail system. And they said we were off trail, uh, which we weren't. We weren't off trail. And they had all this beef with like, you guys are ruining it. This is, this is the problem with you guys. And I love it because it's one, it allows me to to see the the true nature of these people, but I also hate it because it's like overlanding, off roading, uh, these elitist. And I've met a lot of these elitist uh, in, in a short period of time that come out and think somehow because I don't know they're better trained, they off road on the weekend more, that they're more valid in their voice, and then they they could suppress other people's opinions and voice. And come out with this negativity. One, I want you to understand that if don't let that deter you from getting into a great community 
of people, right? This is Americans and people, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, etc., that want to get outdoors. You know, overlanding is traveling from one point to another with a destination, and it's about the journey. And the reality is anybody, doesn't matter what vehicle you have or how much stuff or crap you have on your vehicle, you could be in this community because you could be part of it. You could take your minivan, you could take your Toyota Corolla, uh, and you could travel overland to a destination, document it, talk about it, and you're part of our community. Um, the, the perspective that we have on it is we like to look at overlanding in the preparedness realm, right? Because that's what we do. But I think and I look at a vehicle as being an, extent, an extension of your rucksack. You know, if you have a personal capacity or capability to do certain things or carry certain equipment, then you're at a better advantage and you have more capacity by having a vehicle. And, and typically, most of us are, are tethered to some form of vehicle, whether it's a bicycle, a motorcycle, a, a car, a truck, whatever it may be, we are tethered to these vehicles because we use them as modes of transportation. And, you know, ever since the 1800s, uh, you know, I believe the 18, uh, mid-1800s, when diesel um, and gasoline were utilized in a combustible engine, um, it set a new precedence that, hey, we didn't have to use horse and wagon or horse exclusively. We could overland long distances using fuel, and that increased our ability to network, to trade, uh, to, to develop relationships, and to travel. And that's what I love about the overland community. That's, that's why I'm big on it because, you know, I've overlanded all over the world, uh, not even realizing that I was overlanding. I mean, I didn't go, oh, I'm overlanding now because I'm getting in this Land Rover and driving across Afghanistan where I've spent weeks on the open road. I mean, I've even done it in Libya, you know, where we go on these trips and we have to plan accordingly in land cruisers moving from uh, Tripoli, the capital of Libya, out to more rural destinations in the middle of the desert. And so there's a whole bunch of things that can benefit you if you kind of understand the mindset and understand that uh, you're not ex excluded from this because you don't have a Toyota 4Runner tricked out with all the modifications. Um, me and Scott Brady, uh, we're doing a podcast talking about some of our overland travel experiences, and you should listen to that. It's uh, archived in here uh, in the Philcraft Survival Podcast. But we were joking about how you would be, you know, we, I was in a Land Rover, a tricked-out Land Rover that had guns and stuff all built all over it, and we had chopped, it was a Defender 110, we had chopped because we needed an, a vehicle that was lighter weight, that could go over bridges that were, you know, basically handmade, not basically, were handmade, uh, you know, cross narrow paths where, you know, one side is a cliff and the other side's a mountain. And so we couldn't use our up-armored vehicles. We had to use these uh, civilian-type vehicles that were chopped down. But I remember driving in these vehicles and getting top, you know, jostled around and thinking, you know, hey, this is real cool that we're overlanding. And, you know, oncoming, you see a car in the distance. You're like, what the hell is this? And it's a Toyota Corolla or a Camry. You know, these small front-wheel drive vehicles driving all over the country. Um, we call them uh, taxi cabs. But these little cabs were going up and down our main supply route, which was you know, right on the edge, the foothills of, when I say foothills, they're mountains of the Hindu Kush mountain range. 
And so if you look at the world and you look at the vehicles that people use in these austere environments, they don't have the luxury of roads, paved roads, every single place with guardrails. They're just making it work. And they're not using these um, high-speed, overland, off-road-capable vehicles. They're, they're just not doing it. So don't be deterred. I think it's a, it's a real cool um, genre to be in, overlanding. And I think there's a lot of crossovers. You know, Talking to 5.11, talking to Overland Journal, there's a lot of crossovers in the demographic of, hey, what kind of vehicle do you have? Okay, well, you have this kind of vehicle. Do you go shooting? If you go shooting, what kind of setup do you have? Um, you know, if you go sport shooting, for example, what kind of setup do you have? Do you have a truck vault? Do you have a Boss Strom box? You know, do you go camping? Well, if you have a vehicle for camping, um, an RV, maybe you have a ve- your actual vehicle set up to go camping. And so there's kind of a, a tie-in between the tactical, the overland, uh, and the travel world that seems to be meshing together and uniting. And I like that. I think that's pretty cool. One of the things that uh, we decided to do as a company is focus our attention on overland training because of this. You know, if I, I'm teaching survival, for example, um, and you're out and about in the middle of a rural environment, more than likely you didn't get dropped off. You probably drove yourself to the destination. So if you know where your vehicle is at and you have that vehicle, it could be uh, an extension of your rucksack, an, an extension of your capability. You have uh, a halfway decent insulated platform that can keep you out of the elements. Even if you run out of gas and you don't have anything, um, you have plenty of material to start a fire. You have electricity and the battery if the battery's working. You have a whole bunch of things that you could modify to that vehicle to improve that capability of preparedness. So the way I think about it is, you know, the vehicle that I'm using every single day as my daily driver, how capable is it? And so we'll address some of those things. So the overland training thing is something that we've been working on for months now. You know, we started offering a couple courses. We had our first course sell out really fast, and we, but we want to make it accessible to everybody. So what we decided to do is do a mobile training course where it will be myself or one of my instructors, Mike Hernandez, Jimmy Fenner, Raul Martinez, Mason Minner, uh, one of these guys going out in the middle of nowhere with their rig and then teaching you survival off their rig using your own. And you don't have to show up with a high-speed rig. We could teach you using what you have, and that's the best thing in this course. And then part of that training is like, if you are in the middle of nowhere, we could focus on first aid. We could focus on survival. We could focus on recovery. We could focus on communications and navigation. So there's a whole bunch of breakout of different things that are important to understand when looking at training. It's not just about the you know, camel trophy type recovery in the middle of a river or in the middle of a mud pit. In fact, uh, we like to teach that if you end up in that situation, um, that's kind of like the worst case scenario. So there's probably 10 additional steps in front of that that you might have missed in picking your route uh, and looking and judging or measuring the terrain uh, that led you to that bad outcome. But we want to teach you nonetheless from beginning to end. And so our training is going to be very important for us. One, uh, we're going to be doing overlandtraining.com is the website they're going to be uh, accessing. Two, we'll be providing training all over the United States, even overseas. Three, it's based on the vehicle that you have and teaching you survival, med, um, recovery, navigation, and the list goes on. And four, we're going to make it affordable for everybody to be involved. 
Um, I can't wait. Uh, this is the fifth thing, but I can't wait to start talking about the content that's going to be involved with this. We're going to start an Overland training channel. Um, we'll have outlets for you guys to get involved uh, on Facebook uh, and all, all for free as per kind of our SOP and operating like Philcraft Survival. You know, we want to bring in the experts. We want to bring in uh, the guys and gals who are the subject matter experts that can teach you from their perspective and then offer you the same. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to doing that all together. It's going to be really fun. Speaking of Camel Trophy, if you guys, man, I'm a, I've always been a fan of the Camel Trophy stuff. You know, growing up in the 80s, uh, I used to follow the Camel Trophy stuff as a kid. I even, I even remember I had a, a Camel Trophy toy as a kid. But the Camel Trophy originated in 1980 and went to really the year 2000. It ran about 20 years. Camel, the cigarette company, kind of sponsored this with Land Rover. And what it did was, it actually, <laughs> what's interesting about it is it actually originated with, I uh, believe it was six Germans and three Jeeps. It was CJ6s they rented in Brazil that they used to go across the, and explore the Amazon basin. And when they did that the first year, it, it was really neat and took off You know, for people uh, that were interested in this kind of culture of off-roading and overlanding. It was really cool for the world to see. And so from 81 to 2000, uh, for the exception of a couple years, Land Rover was exclusively involved. And these were heavily modified vehicles that were special vehicles uh, for the expedition that include recovery equipment, safety equipment, winches, Mantec, uh, snorkels, trans, you know, pr- transmission breathers, auxiliary, uh, auxiliary fuel tanks, all these things that we talk about with Philcraft Survival. And so they did these trips all over the world. You know, the first year obviously was in the uh, Amazon in Brazil. They did Sumatra the following year. Um, I believe in 1983, they did uh, Zaire, um, which was the year that the, uh, I believe the Americans won in uh, 1993, which they did in the Canary Islands. Uh, one of the coolest ones that I, I think is uh, really interesting is the one they did in Mexico and into Guatemala, which was... Uh, I believe 1995. In 1995, uh, it was called Mundo Maya. They did Guatemala, uh, Guatemala and Mexico. And the reason I think that's cool is because that's doable from here. I mean, we could literally start in Prescott, Arizona and start that journey to replicate that route. But anyways, it went on for 20 years and it highlighted uh, the industry. I believe in uh, 1998, 99, it started getting weird. And then 2000, um, I believe they canceled it in, t- in the year 2000. Uh, 98 was actually the first official one they did in South Africa, but it kind of changed over into the successor called the G4 Challenge uh, in 2003. Um, but they kind of lost themselves. I believe it was in 99 that it started doing like kayaking and mountain biking, which is cool, but it became this race outside of the vehicle's capabilities. This race was kind of a race. They had time trials. They had awards for specific things. Um, but what's cool, it was a community thing and it brought the world together. You know, Turkey, Italy, Germany, the UK, the Netherlands, Spain, Czech Republic, Greece, all these different uh, countries were involved and it brought the world together rallying around this event. And I, I hate I hate it, but I, I wish it was, uh, they could bring it back. In fact, I have an idea with Jeep to potentially bring it back. Because in 1980, the year that I was born, 
Uh, Jeep ran it, and the, the, they used CJ6s, which were basically extended CJ5s. And it would be so interesting to be able to do that with like JLs. Take three JLs, the new Jeep uh, platform, the new Wrangler Jeep platform, and take a couple of Gladiators at the, as the recovery vehicles and run to Guatemala. How awesome would that be? If you're interested in that and you're a big sponsor, maybe even Jeep, uh, don't don't hesitate to contact us at uh, info at philcraftsurvival.com. So anyways, I'm on this Camel Trophy trip, and, and you know, the culture was so important, and that's when the kind of the, you know, the world was brought together because of it. And I think it would, it's used, it should be used as a template for what right looks like in a lot of aspects. Uh, I hope to get a guy who's a local, he's in Phoenix, who's a uh, Camel Trophy racer, uh, to get him in here and talk about those experiences. So let's talk about the Go Rig. How do we get started here? You know, the first thing is to talk about the platform. You know, ideally, you want an off-road capable platform. Now, the four-wheel drive industry, which is, you know, a, a, a genre or a niche genre of the um, um, motor industry uh, or, the, or the truck industry or vehicle industry, is very specific, um, and there's a balance, right? Because you can get really extreme. You could have a mudder, a rock crawler. You could have this platform that's you know designed for off-road travel. But the important thing to identify is the balance between off-road capability and on-road capability. What I mean is, let's say you're looking at uh, a set of tires. Well, you could get mud terrains, and mud terrains are exactly what they're made for. They're made for mud. And so the tread's larger in pattern. They have a thicker, thicker sidewall uh, in case you run into obstacles in the sidewall and doesn't knock it off the beat or, or shred it. And it's exclusively made for off-road, but it has slight, a slight on-road capability as well. I mean, you could drive this tire pretty much anywhere, but you're going to pay for it. You're going to pay for it in fuel or gas mileage. Um, you're going to pay for it in road noise. Um, you might pay for in handling on the road. And so there's kind of like a, a good balance. It's like what percentage of the time do you expect to be off-road versus uh, being on-road? Uh, I remember I got into motorcycles, and I used to have, you know, a few. I've had a few adventure motorcycles, and one of them was a KTM 1190. Beautiful, beautiful motorcycle. This motorcycle was made uh, for off-road riding, but it also could handle on-road. And so it had the pickup, the speed, uh, but it was super tall and super big. So it's, it's not like you, what you would see in a single track, you know, KTM 450. It's a large platform. And I thought I could find the balance between the two. And I used to go off-road with that vehicle. Would have all kinds of issues with that vehicle, especially in, in slick terrain or if I was trying to do any single track. So I realized, hey, this is more for on-road. This is like a, a 70, 80, 90% on-road capable vehicle or platform that you could use off-road in uh, different kinds of terrain, but not aggressive off-road driving. And so uh, the Africa Twin, for example, was a better balance of that off-road and on-road. With a 21-inch front tire um, and, and a better center of gravity, not being so top-heavy, it's just a little little bit better for off-road riding and on-road riding. It's still on-road capable. So you have to find the balance, right? So what I like to think about is what is a vehicle that I could use as a daily driver? You know, a daily driver, I don't want to be uncomfortable. 
You know, as a daily driver, I wanted to get decent gas mileage. But I also want to know in the preparedness realm that if shit did hit the fan, that I could immediately hop curves, get off road, and I'm going to be okay. And so one of the things I want you to pay attention to in making the decision to lean towards a, a specific vehicle is looking at the actual load capacity. You know, this a lot of this is based off a of gross vehicle weight, which is the overall weight um, that it's a vehicle is capable of. But some of the vehicles, like for example, a Forerunner and a Tacoma, um, they don't have a great load capacity. Um, so, uh, you know, on average, you're looking at about 1,500 pounds of load capacity outside of the uh, the actual um, weight of the vehicle. So we're looking at a payload capacity. And the average for Forerunners, the average for uh, Toyota uh, Tacomas, even Land Cruisers is about 1,500 pounds to about 1,700 pounds with a curb weight of about 4,400 uh, to 4,800 pounds, which means, you know, if you look at that, uh, a, a good rule of thumb is your load capacity is going to denote really uh, even your curb weight and your gross vehicle weight is going to determine your towing capacity as well. So let's take the Forerunner, for example, 1,500 pounds of payload right? 1,500 pounds of payload. When you take yourself, your partner, your kids, your dog, your backpacks, your, you know, your camping equipment, your rooftop tent, your bumpers, your still and, uh, uh, still rock sliders, uh, still front bumper, rear, rear bumper with swing arms, um, even heavier sized, uh, tires, all that adds up and you could quickly reach your payload capacity. I have a podcast, an older podcast, where I was in uh, Utah, outside of a small town uh, of Utah up north, and I was on a one-lane road, which would be considered a single track for a off-road vehicle, and it was snowing. And I had so much stuff, and I say crap, because a lot of it's needless, and a lot of it I don't need. Um, loaded down in that vehicle, and as I try to get traction, the rear end, I could feel the rear end because of all the weight was mostly on the rear end, was pushing the vehicle off to the right and right on the edge of a cliff down a ravine. Um, and, and so it made me very uncomfortable in the way the vehicle felt articulating and the suspension, the way it felt loaded, and even the handling on the road. Gas mileage was affected, and the list goes on and on. So when you're looking at a vehicle, make sure you identify, one, uh, what your needs are going to be, but two, look at the off-road capability based on the payload capacity. If you have a family of four, for example, well, a, a Toyota 4Runner might not be your best option. Um, if you look at, at payloads, for example, of a Sequoia Let's take a Sequoia. A Sequoia is built on a Tundra frame. And so when you take a uh, Toyota Sequoia, it's, it's a large vehicle, but it has a, a, a better towing capacity. That's 7,400 pounds compared to about 5,000 pounds for a 4Runner. But the payload's generally the same. You're talking about 1,400 pounds. But with that extra towing capacity, because it is a bigger uh, vehicle, you could tow or hitch... Uh, all your overland uh, accessories and equipment. And so you don't necessarily have to focus it on, it on it being on the frame of your vehicle and making it unsafe. You could actually get a tow-behind trailer 
that could be used for overlanding or for preparedness. Um, so the exception outside of these vehicles is looking at other platforms that have uh, larger axles and uh, larger uh, capacity. So if you take a, a Dodge 3500 payload capacity, for example, you're talking a payload rating of around 4,000 pounds. That's the 2,500, 3,500, and a towing capacity of 12,000 pounds. So now let's talk about a diesel, a diesel option. Like I have a Dodge 2,500, 6.7 liter diesel pickup truck. I have it deleted, um, which means I've gotten rid of the emissions so it breathes better. Um, it has a chip in it which can control on the fly uh, five different positions for horsepower and torque. And I can carry 4,000 pounds. That's why I have that, that uh, uh, extra fuel cell to extend my range. So you're looking at 4,000 pounds as opposed to 1,500 pounds. So I can get 20 miles per gallon in my pickup truck, 15 if I'm lucky in the 4Runner. So maybe a pickup truck is the best option. Because if you have a large family, a large signature, and you're thinking about loaning it down for travel, you could have the rooftop tent. You could have you know, your fishing stuff, your camping stuff, your kids, your dogs, everything you have, and still won't even come close to that 4,000-pound rating. So you're still capable. Now, pickup trucks don't have the best off-road handling capabilities because the rear end is very light. And so you experience wheel hop, uh, the lack of traction, and most pickup trucks don't come with uh, lock, locking differentials. So you might want to look at pickup trucks uh, and, you know, if you have a large family as, yeah, you're going to sacrifice some things, but when it comes to payload, that's super important that you address. Now, if you have a car, for example, like a standard, let's take a Toyota Corolla. A Toyota Corolla is a super common uh, platform that you see uh, all over the country. In fact, I think it was... It's one of the, the, the most stolen vehicles on the planet. Um, so let's look up real quick the Toyota Corolla payload um, capacity. So a Toyota Corolla payload capacity is about 850 pounds. I can tell you from experience, um, you could have a carload full of people and their, and their gear, and you're easily meeting that 850 pounds. Um, like for example, the Nissan Quest minivan, which is a you know it's a larger uh, version, right, of a of a, a standard SUV, has twelve hundred pounds. So you're not really gaining too much uh, uh, capacity, even with a larger vehicle. So make sure you pay attention to that. I like to stay, depending on what I'm doing. Like if I'm running a Forerunner, for example, I have a 2016 Trail Forerunner, has all the off-road capability, but I'll use that for light weight camping. And so a lot of the stuff that I did or that I used to do, I've stopped doing. For example, rooftop tent. I don't need to be in a rooftop tent. I could be on the ground uh, with a tent and save hundreds of pounds of capacity, which allows me better capability off-road. So important to know. The next thing that you need to look at is the ability to have an extended fuel range. Now, a lot of people look at um, their fuel tank um, as their potential range, but don't know that there's aftermarket options for extended fuel range. So when you look at extended fuel tanks, for example, uh, there's a couple companies. Long Range America is one. Uh, Transfer Flow is another. Let's take my my pickup truck, for example. I have a, that 2008 Dodge 
2,500 uh, diesel pickup truck. With a 35-gallon tank, I have a certain amount of miles that I can get, time, times 20 miles per gallon, et cetera. So when you're looking at that, one consideration is weight, right? Diesel weighs actually a little bit more than uh, standard uh, fuel gas. Um, so uh, I take the calculation, I think it's 6.3, 6.4 pounds per gallon, and I can determine the weight based on 35 gallons. So if I'm looking to extend my range, I can go a transfer flow, which I, which I did for the, um, the off-road challenge when I moved my vehicle from Arizona, Prescott, Arizona, to Canada on one tank of gas. Now, I got a transfer flow tank that's tied into my existing fuel tank. You're looking at 75 gallons of additional fuel. That's 110 gallons of, of fuel. So let's do the math real quick. So at 110 gallons times 20 miles per gallon, that's over 2,000 miles on one tank of gas. It was kind of, it was interesting to drive and not have to stop for fuel. Really interesting. Um, one thing you have to understand about fuel and a vehicle is the way the ways generators work, you know, the way generators work is the same way that a vehicle works. I mean, you're driving a generator, which means you have a whole bunch of electric capability and power supply using that vehicle. And so fuel is very important, not only to extend your range for preparedness, but also uh, if the infrastructure or um, the grid goes down. You know, electricity, a lot of people don't realize it, but you could manually pump gas, but a lot of uh, gas companies and gas stations don't have the capability to manually pump fuel. And so let's say the grid goes down. Well, you don't have access to even run your card uh, your debit or your credit card at a fuel gas station. So now, how are you going to get gas? And even if there was the availability of gas, I run in, in this in uh, Libya, where gas was very fragile, the system in gas was very fragile, where uh, those gas stations could be shut down. Imagine everybody's trying to get gas if the electricity shuts down for a few days because uh, of a natural disaster. Well, how are you going to get gas? You're going to wait in line? You're going to fight over gas? Or how are you going to get it? So what you have to remember is not only for convenience and extending your fuel range, but if you run that tank, uh, 2,000 gallons, let's say you keep it topped off, right? You keep the 75-gallon tank that's in your, the back of your bed of your pickup truck topped off, and you tap into the 35-gallon tank that's on your vehicle. Well, you have that reserve that could last you a, an extended period of time. I mean, let's say... Let's say you're taking um, that extended fuel tank and you're talking about the commute of uh, 15 miles in duration. Uh, let's say it's seven miles to the grocery store and seven miles back. That gives you 146 rotations. The ability for you to move from your house to the gas station or into town based on a seven-mile or 15-mile round-trip trip, that, that allows you 150 uh, rotations of going in and out of town. That is a lot of capability. And then I encourage you to kind of measure the analytics of determining where you would go in the worst case scenario. Let's say you, you, you live in Sacramento, California. And in Sacramento, California, your, your bug out plan is to go from Sacramento, California to uh, Prescott, Arizona. Well, the, the total time or the total time to get 
to Prescott, Arizona is 11 hours, but it's only 754 miles. Well, if you have a, you know, a 2,000 plus mile tank, that's, that's there and back and then some to spare. So if you're in Sacramento or you're in a urban area and you want to go rural, then you have the availability to pack your family out, load up your truck with the capacity and haul ass and get to where you need to be. That's an important distinction when looking at your capability. And, you know, I'm working with a, a company now called Long Range America, great company to work with. And as I speak, my vehicle is at Summit uh, Jeep Company. Off, that's a off-road uh, Jeep company. That's my favorite Jeep company uh, here in Prescott, Arizona. Summit Jeep, you could Google Summit Jeep in Prescott, Arizona. If you need parts, if you need equipment, if you need uh, installation, those guys are the guys to go to. They're, they're experts and have been in business a long time uh, when it comes to Jeeps. My 2015 Jeep Wrangler JKU, uh, which is the unlimited version, which is a Rubicon, is getting a uh, an additional um, 15, or I think it's 15 point, it's almost 16 gallon tank, which is doubling nearly the fuel capacity of my uh, Jeep JK, which means I can get about 600 miles on that JK. So Long Range America makes different um, uh, kits for different vehicle platforms. Uh, as I described in the um, beginning of this podcast with Camel uh, Trophy, they ran extended fuel tanks because they knew they had to go into austere um, environments that didn't have a lot of infrastructure. And so go to longrangeamerica.com, longrangeamerica.com, go to tanks, and then you could shop. You know, they, they have a definition of a long-range fuel tank, which I think is really cool. Um, their tanks provide secure storage of, of, of vehicle fuel made in Australia and certified by Craftsman and a family owned factory. It's a third decade of, of um, operations. Remember, in Australia, you can go weeks without running into anybody. So these replacement tank uh, tanks replace factory units or they have auxiliary tanks that are added to supplement the factory tank. Look at these tanks because that that is going to... I don't care if you have a Honda Civic. You could modify your vehicle to increase your fuel capacity. The other alternative to this is taking... Uh, reserve fuel tanks, whether that's plastic or uh, NATO jerry cans, whatever it may be, have some kind of plan to cache fuel either in your vehicle. Um, I I recommend on your vehicle, right? On the back of a a swing arm. Like I run a CBI uh, dual swing arm uh, made made by CBI off-road. That's Charlie Bravo India CBI off-road that I keep two jerry cans on the back. And so if I run into issues, which I have, and you know, going off-road in the middle of nowhere, um, I have some kind of contingency, some kind of backup. Um, another thing that you need to focus on when looking at selecting a potential vehicle is its ability to off-road, uh, the individual ability to off-road. And so there's a few things that are, are important to note. One... Um, does it have four-wheel drive? Does it have all-wheel drive? Does it have locking differentials, front, middle, and rear? And what are the abilities of that vehicle to uh, do that work? Uh, I always recommend for somebody who's getting into this uh, to look at outside of the, the reserve fuel tank or uh, auxiliary fuel tank, look at your wheel and tire combo. 
tires uh, are really important when looking at off-road capability. You know, I, I've seen uh, specific tires like the Wild Peak made by Falcon get people out of, including myself, out of really sticky situations where um, if I didn't have that specific tire, I don't know if I would have made it. And that's with four-wheel drive. So imagine if you have a front-wheel drive vehicle and that's all you have. Um, I, I remember I went to a, a course um, on the East Coast. You know, in special operations, we have the luxury of going to a whole bunch of high-speed off-road and on-road driving courses. And one of the best ones I went to uh, was on the East Coast in New Hampshire called Team O'Neill's. And part of that course, they taught us high-speed and low-speed driving off-road in different kinds of vehicles. And it's amazing how different they handle based on the uh, disposition of the vehicle, front-wheel drive versus rear-wheel drive, or all-wheel drive versus four-wheel drive. And, you know, I, we, we did everything from BMWs, Audis, to uh, Toyota Tacomas, all kinds of things, all different kinds of uh, different vehicles. But there's a very distinct difference between a front-wheel drive vehicle's capabilities and an all-wheel drive or a four-wheel drive vehicle's capabilities. Uh, one of the things I, I, I love about the Toyota 4Runner is all of the systems that are in the trail model or now, after 2016, the TRD model to get yourself out of a sticky situation off-road, like locking differentials, um, like um, uh, an articulating system that allows you to turn off uh, your traction control. Um the option to do four-wheel drive from two-wheel drive on the fly as opposed to having to stop and put it in neutral and then transition it like uh, some Jeeps, like my TJ. So when you're looking at these options, it, if you have the option between not having off-road capability in a four-wheel drive versus having it, always obviously go for the four-wheel drive. If you're in a vehicle, like a car, I'm sorry, like a car, you have different options. I had a su I've had three different Subaru Impreza's, uh, including a WRX, and they're great off-road. There's there's um, reason why they're successful in a lot of the rally off-road racing. Um, it, go with an all-wheel drive vehicle. I mean, I ran different versions of Audis overseas, and they're they're truly capable. But definitely look at that as a consideration. What tire do I recommend? My favorite tire is. The AT3Ws made by Wild Peak uh, Falcons, uh, made by Wild Peak Falcons, or Falcon Wild Peak, sorry. So Falcon Wild Peak A3, uh, AT3W is an all-terrain tire that's amazing because it's not loud and it's off-road capable. It's not super aggressive like the MTs. I have the, uh, the Falcon MTs on my Jeep. And they're, they're not crazy, but I don't, I don't plan to do cross-country uh, trips uh, Inside of my, uh, <coughs> inside of my uh, um, um, Jeep, that's that's a lot of off-road use, but I can if I wanted to. But my big pickup truck, I do a lot of long uh, trips over uh, uh, over over land. I just came back from Wyoming, and in Wyoming, um, there's very terrain. I was out on a muddy range um, because it rained the day before. And I was on a, on traveling 13 plus hours from Arizona, so the AT3s are perfect for uh, the balance between on road and off road use. It's an, it's definitely a great all terrain option.
So let's talk about um, some of the things that you should focus on in training when looking at overlanding. Well, the best thing about training is the access to information that we have that we never had uh, before the uh, uh, internet. You know, before the internet, it, we had to go to a lot of training courses. We had to talk to subject matter experts. Uh, we had to get in these AOL chat, AOL chat rooms and build rapport and ask the questions in, in order to learn. Or we picked up books. So the great thing about today is you could YouTube or Google anything that you're interested in and get schooled up on it. Now, that doesn't replace the advantages that you get from um, the experience, right? I see all these people who are masters of the social media overlanding, but they're not really doing a lot of experienced overlanding. You know, they're, they're um, talking about a lot of the things they have or they do, um, but they, they're not spending a lot of time outdoors and learning those lessons learned. Like we, you know, obviously at Philcraft, we, we live this lifestyle. I mean, I'm out every single weekend or every single day that I can get the opportunity. Um, by advantage, I have access to National Forest in my backyard uh, for hundreds of miles. So, um, but I want to learn the lessons uh, while in the field. So use the resources for information and then go out there and experience it. Um, in training, don't just focus on the off-road driving. Some of the best off-road trainers in the world will tell you if you end up in these sticky situations, it's probably your own fault and you're pushing the limits. You know, uh, there's, there's good statistics out there, for example, on destroying your vehicle. A lot of people who destroy their vehicles do so because of speed. You know, if they're wheel hopping, for example, where the suspension is aggressively bouncing off the road because of the displacement of energy in their suspension, and they're bouncing, um, that is the lead up to a catastrophic event taking place. And if they gun it and they try to power through, more than likely they're going to see a break. You're going to see axles breaking. You're going to see uh, differentials uh, breaking. You're going to see all kinds of catastrophic things that could have been prevented. And so ensure that you also don't just train uh, off-road specific, but you train survival. Uh, you train first aid. You train navigation and isolate all these little specific things. Uh, I'm excited about this overland training thing that we're doing because we will be offering those courses that are certified. We'll be offering courses that are certified um, on navigation, certified on recovery, so that you could you know, archive your certificates. We can create the database and archive our database where we know that you're working up, um, checking the block in the specific skill sets uh, to make yourself a be better, more capable human being off-road. And this really ties into preparedness. If you're better trained, right, and then you can go out on the weekend and have fun and then exercise that training and execution, it's just going to make you better off for it. It's just going to make you a better operator in the field. Um, so let's talk about my top three choices for platforms um, to start this venture in. Number one, I'm not a fan of the Toyota Tacoma. It's not on the list. Uh, people were uh, addressing that with me, and they're like, why Why isn't the Toyota Tacoma on the list? It's not on the list because, look, I'm not a fan of the Toyota Tacoma. One, it doesn't have a lot of payload. Two, the factory suspension isn't that great. The rear end's obviously too light, so you got to load it down so it's, it doesn't handle very good off-road. Uh, off now, obviously, if you invest a lot of money, like a lot of people do um, with Toyota Tacomas, you'll, you might see the... Uh, 
you might reap the benefits of inputting all that money. And but that's not what I look for is like factory wise, like something off uh, the shelf. When I pull it off the shelf and drive it off a lot, uh, how capable is it? I think the Forerunner, the Toyota Forerunner TRD, um, or any honestly any SR5 even with a four wheel drive capability is one of the best handling vehicles as long as you don't load it down uh, that are available. Also, what's more important uh, than that is the reliability. Look, I I know this because I have one, and I have uh, over 115,000 miles. Yeah, 115,000 miles I have on my rig. And I've only owned that rig for two years, January, February, March, April, May, June, July. Two years and seven months. So in two years and seven months, I have put uh, 115,000 miles. That's like two months of 24 hours a day of my life inside that vehicle. And you know how many issues I've had? None. Zero. I mean, I've had suspension-related issues. Um, I've had uh, the changing out of different things for maintenance, but just normal stuff that you would normally see. But no serious, significant issues. And that's, that's a true testament to the reliability that you see across uh, the world with Toyotas. I mean, look, I was in Libya, and we bought Toyotas. Uh, because we needed to use them for operations. I was in uh, Africa, in Niger, Africa, where we bought Toyotas because we needed them for uh, certain applications. So it's a great um, vehicle for for all the things that you need to do in preparedness um, and in off-roading uh, and overlanding. Uh, my second pick would be the t- Dodge 2500 diesel option pickup truck. And I say this because, one, the low capacity, two... Um, outside of like the AEV conversion, right, which is super expensive. I, I think it's super badass, but um, you have a vehicle that's truly capable in capacity. If you live in a great county like I live in that's emissions-free, you could chip the, uh, the diesel. You don't have all this DEF crap on it. I can get rid of all that stuff, and I could drive that vehicle. Um, it, it breathes well, and I get a very good uh, mild mile capacity out of the fuel tank. I mean, I got um, a 35-gallon tank. I have oh, just stock, and I get 15 uh, in the city and about 22 on the highway miles per gallon with a, a truck that can carry a whole bunch of crap. I mean, for, remember I told you the payload capacity is 4,000 pounds, and the towing capacity is 11,000 pounds. That's insanity. That's really all you need. Now, obviously, the downfalls are the, the size I mean, we're talking about a vehicle that um, in in urban cities, which I've been in with my truck, are difficult to park, difficult to find um, in, in nooks and crannies when you're competing with Priuses and Honda Civics. So yeah, I definitely recommend uh, that one. The next vehicle that's on my list of recommended is going to be the uh, Toyota Tundra. Now, a lot of people... You know, a lot of people don't like the Tundra uh, as an option, and I heard uh, next year it's going to actually go to a Tundra body on a Toyota Tacoma frame, which I think is crazy. I don't know if that's true or not, but I heard that. Um, a lot of people don't like Tundras because they're not very good at at fuel consumption. There's not a diesel version of it, right? Um, but the gas version is big. So if you have a big family, if you have kids, if you have 
uh, an extended family, if you have lots of friends, and uh, you need the room, it's great space. Like Travis Hess, his uh, Tundra that's completely kitted out is huge. I was surprised at how big it was. Um, but the cool thing is it has towing capacity. It has towing capacity, not the best gas, gas mileage, and not the best payload capacity, but it's better than uh, most trucks that you see or most small size, small pickups that you see. Um, actually, I'm not a fan of these small uh, pickup trucks. I'm just not a fan. My, my, one of my favorite pickup trucks was an SR5. It didn't have a quad cab. Um, and it was a 1983. It was a, a, a truck that I owned. It was titled as a Hilux. That was a great truck. But uh, it, it met its purpose. It was good for a rock crawler. And you couldn't bear it down with a whole bunch of stuff because it didn't even have the room to load down a, a lot of stuff. But um, outside of that, I'm not a big fan of like these the, the comas and everything else because I don't think um, it meets the demands of either or. Now, the payload capacity on a new Toyota, 2019 Toyota Tundra is anywhere from 1440 to 1730 hundred pounds. That, again, is not a lot. That is not a lot in the big scheme of things. So, um, Toyota Tundra's uh, reasonable price point, the MSRP for around $31,000. They're large. They can be configured in, in a lot of different ways. Take uh, Travis Hess's version uh, versus uh, George's version. George has a, a version that's per, pretty much stock, but it allows him and his three kids and his wife to go wherever they want and to have that towing capacity if they want to trail an RV. I mean, it, it has a towing capacity all the way up to 10,000 pounds, which is, which is pretty good. So again, the Toyota 4Runner, right? The Toyota Tundra and the Dodge 2500 pickup truck are my top three options. So guys, hopefully you got something out of that podcast. And uh, you know, I know a lot of people are super interested in this field of overlanding and off-roading. I think it's important. I think it's important as a genre, but more importantly, uh, as a capability. Everybody should be thinking about this and the lead-ups to what you want to accomplish. I want to give a big shout-out to Black Rifle Coffee Company. Big shout-out to Evan Hafer, the CEO. Uh, Thanks for sponsoring this podcast. Thanks for what you guys do for all the veterans. If if you guys are interested um, in supporting Black Rifle Coffee Company, go to their .com and use Philcraft20 on checkout and save and save 20%. That's a big, huge discount. Thank you very much. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, tomorrow or on the on July 4th, whenever you're listening to this, um, if they wouldn't have a big sell. I, I, I rock their swag. I drink their dark blend of coffee. Uh, I just got resupplied recently. Uh, recently. So uh, big shout-out to those guys. I also want to say big shout-out to TriarchSystems.com. If you guys haven't checked out some of our reviews, some of our posts on Triarch, make sure you check them out because... We've, I've run their Glock 17 Charlie through uh, every single test I, I could and no malfunctions in that. And that's hard for a custom uh, gun company to, to accomplish. A lot of uh, guns that I've tested that are custom guns seem to have a flaw, and some of them fatal, a fatal flaw that you don't want to happen in the middle of defending your life. No flaws in the Triarch uh, guns that I've been running. I just got their fold-out uh, custom carbine. It's a 10-inch gun. I look forward to, uh, I already tested it, but uh, ran flawlessly, and I look to f- uh, forward to running more rounds through that. But make sure you check out TriarchSystems.com. That's T-R-I-A-R-C Systems.com, and use Philcraft to save 5% on any gun build. 5% on any gun build. So if you're looking in the AR-15 market, and you're looking for 
uh, a pesto carbine custom, check out TriarchSystems.com. Hey, I want to give uh, a big shout out to uh, all the members of the tribe. If you're a member of the tribe, you are on the closed uh, Philcraft uh, uh, Facebook page. We'll be doing an AR-15 video soon. By the time you listen to this, it's probably already up. But if you're a monthly or annual member, you could subscribe. You could find that out on PhilCraftSurvival.com. And you get access to all of our content. You get to attend our uh, Overland Expo, which is held uh, two times a year. And the price that you pay for a year membership, even with a family, is what you pay for one training course with us. And you have access to all the videos, uh, all the archive training videos. And then you get to hang out with us at the Expo and learn. It's Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It's a weekend of networking, uh, a weekend of fun, and a weekend of training and preparedness. So make, make sure you check that out at PhilCraftSurvival.com. Hey, guys, I want to say thank you for tuning in the podcast. Until next time, stay alert, stay alive, and make sure you guys um, thank a veteran uh, on this Independence Day. Happy Fourth of July. 